0: Technology surrounds us all. It's changed the way that we discover new music, find a new favorite restaurant, and even how we communicate with our loved ones. Sharing a funny TikTok is the same as sending an I miss you text, right? Each week, Wired's podcast Gadget Lab tackles gear reviews and breaking tech news, asking the big questions about what's shaping our world today. How can consumers navigate the ever-growing streaming ecosystem? Should TikTok be considered a national security threat? How should we regulate AI? If these questions get the gears in your head turning, head over to Gadget Lab with new episodes available each week wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's crazy to me that the people who don't have the power but do have the purpose in terms of seeking change are over there by themselves, overlooked, underestimated, And the people who have the power to make the change are attached to that purpose, that deep purpose of making society better. So if you take the people with the purpose for change and people with the power for change, you put them together, you have an unbelievable coalition. And then the whole world falls in love with that.
2: Hi, I'm Reid Hoffman.
0: And I'm Aria Finger.
2: We want to know what happens if in the future, everything breaks humanity's way.
0: We're speaking with visionaries in many fields, from art to geopolitics and from healthcare to education.
2: These conversations showcase another kind of guest, whether it's Inflection's Pi or OpenAI's ChatGPT, each episode, we use AI to enhance and advance our discussion.
0: In each episode, we seek out the brightest version of the future, and learn what it'll take to get there.
2: This is Possible. Technology often starts small. A single line of code, piece of hardware, or laptop in a garage, dorm room, or lab. A few people with conviction. Early stage nomenclature, seed funding, early adopters, reinforces this reality. Then, with work, time, and luck, the product grows, the team grows, and the number of users grow. I can't think of many cases in which a technology was truly, immediately everything, everywhere, all at once. Even AI has had its humble beginnings decades ago.
0: That makes total sense. Technology grows as demand, interest, and conviction for it grows. However, there's a challenge with this cycle, especially for general-purpose technologies like AI, which have a wide range of potential applications across many different industries and sectors. If general-purpose technology is built for many, but ultimately cultivated by far fewer people, how can we be sure that it's built with the many in mind? This is especially critical for generation-defining technology like the internet, mobile phones, cloud. And now, AI.
2: Yes. Technology defines generations as much as it changes the lives of individual people. Think about the origins of the labor movement in the late 1700s or the New Deal in the 30s. These were in part responses to upheavals in technology and society. With AI and its evolution, as well as the upcoming election in the U.S., we have a number of defining moments ahead. As the stories of AI and our next administration are written... How, when, and where can we include the many people who have a stake in these developments?
0: We hear about the bias, lack of access, and limited training sets in AI tools. There are many anecdotes about what comes from all of this, too. For example, I'm reminded of Trevor Noah's story from last season about the AI that couldn't identify Black women as easily as white women because of its preconceptions about makeup. We've learned that the technology can be fixed when these issues are surfaced, but how can we do that better and more quickly? How can we build AI such that all people are represented well and that all people can benefit? These are big questions, and today's guest is thinking about all of these issues. He even received a $100 million grant from Jeff Bezos to address them.
2: Van Jones is the host of two CNN shows a New York Times bestselling author and the co-founder of multiple social enterprises to address issues of criminal justice, climate change, and social equity. Those organizations include the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, a nonprofit focused on justice and opportunities for urban America, and Color for Change, a racial justice organization. He's also partnered with CodePath, which helps low-income students train for careers in the tech industry.
0: Here is our conversation with Van Jones. Van, it is such a delight to have you here, and I've had the distinct pleasure of getting to know you over the years, and many of our listeners know your great work with prison reform and the green economy, but I wanted something new. So I asked a mutual friend of ours uh, who used to work with you for some new material, and she said, well, most people know you as an activist, pundit, thought leader. You have a very creative side. So you've written interesting short stories yourself, and you have ideas for comic books. So can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Well, I think that Afrofuturism, uh, solar punk, like there's certain aesthetics and and cultural lenses that are going to be required for us to make this leap into a completely different human civilization. I mean, that's basically what's happening. Um, you yeah, know, I've got a an 18 month old baby girl. She's going to live in a completely different civilization than what I was born into. You know, five or six years when uh, she has a crush, it's not going to be a cartoon character or a rock star. It's probably going to be an AI. How do you manage that as a parent? Um, In 30 years, you know, if she wants to have grandkids, uh, for me, uh, she could probably design them on a laptop. Like, that's weird. 80, 90, 100 years from now, when she, you know, heaven forbid, when she passes away, she might be buried on Mars. So that is a different human civilization than the civilization that I was born into. And by the way, she's going to be growing up on a different planet than the one I was born on as well, because at no point in my lifetime, uh, when I was a child, was the North Pole, hotter than the Sahara Desert, and Texas froze. That was called 2021. It was 100 degrees in the North Pole, 85 degrees in the Sahara Desert, and Texas froze. So how do you prepare... The next generation to live in that you've got to use culture, you've got to use art. You've got to. There's an imagination gap between uh, you know what people see every day with their lives and what they're going to be dealing with. And so I'm just passionate about uh, using Afrofuturism. I have a media company called Magic Labs Media, and we've got ideas for a series called AfroNauts Academy—not astronauts, but the AfroNauts Academy—to get young Black and Brown kids excited about space. We've got a bunch of stuff that will be coming coming out soon. But, you know, if you want new facts, you need new fiction.
0: It's so interesting. You know, growing up, I was not really a reader of science fiction. And I thought it was just like funny stories that were being written. Like I had no idea, honestly, until I until I met Reed and we started talking about what we read that this this is how you create the future. You know, sci fi is fantastical, but it's also talking about what's happening in 10 years or what could happen in 10 years or 20 years, to your point, Van, if we flip the script and we let people dream and we let new people into the future. And so it's really opened my eyes. So thank you for that.
1: The entire shorthand for the future is through science fiction. All of the people who are afraid of AI, they say Terminator or The Matrix or Robocop, right? All of the dystopian fears that people have are all translated through Pop culture. And so part of the challenge is those of us who are pro a positive future based on science, yeah, you know, we have very few things to point to. There's Star Trek, there's the Jetsons. Uh, and then if you care about communities I care about, Wakanda. Wakanda is the sort of example in pop culture of what is science were in the hands of people who don't ordinarily have it what if they could use scientific breakthroughs and genius to make the world as they would and so will and will I am and I have joined forces to do an event here in Los Angeles called Make Wakanda Real to get African Americans and our allies excited about what if as Reed says all this stuff broke our way what if all this technology got to the community in a way that made every kid smarter made every household more healthy created more opportunity for more people what if we could make Wakanda real? But again, I can't even have that conversation if there's not a pop cultural reference. Thank goodness we have one in Wakanda.
2: Anything that you can share with us on a on a lens into making Wakanda real that that we can you know tease our our audience with?
1: I do think it's important for us to recognize that we talk about disruption. You know, people think well, we're going to disrupt. We're going to disrupt. We're going to disrupt. Um, there are two things I would say about that. One is let's make sure we disrupt poverty. Uh, Let's make sure we we disrupt pollution. Let's make sure we disrupt prisons, right? There's some systems that need to be disrupted. What I know is that nothing good happens for poor folks by accident. Uh, It really does take planning, intention, purpose. So, you know, when we talk about disruption, let's make sure we are including the systems that really need to be disrupted in those communities. But also, I think disruption reflects a particular point of view or a place in time. You might feel like you're disrupting right now, but for, for the point of view of people 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you're not a disruptor, you're a founder. We, we, we are co-founders of a new civilization. Uh, that is a sacred task. That is a very big deal. Taking that seriously, I think what it requires is the way we make change is going to change. For a long time, those of us, you know, you know, for instance, in black politics, we had a particular playbook. We've had it for about 50 years. Politics is the most important thing electoral politics, trying to elect good people, activism is really important, issues, policy, Supreme Court. It's all been very state oriented, oriented toward trying to get the government on our side so that we can have a better shot. Well, the reality is now, Power seems to be flowing away from states. I mean, I don't you know, like what's happening right now in Congress and Washington D.C. is not very inspiring. You know, they, you know, they're not going to be able to regulate AI. They can't regulate Twitter, handguns, or AK-47s. They are not going to regulate <laughs> artificial intelligence and biotech. That's that's not going to happen. The, the 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 locus of uh, of where the future is going to be created is in technology. Uh, it, the future used to be written in laws. Now it's being written in computer code. It used to be written. The future used to be written in Washington, D.C. Now it's being written in Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston. When we talk about make Wakanda real, there needs to be an accord between these big AI companies and the communities that are usually left out. Whether you're talking about Appalachia, whether you're talking about folks living in housing projects, whether you're talking about folks in Native American reservations, the people who were left out and overlooked and underestimated in the old order in the new order, let's lock them in. So we aren't we aren't just hoping it all works out. We aren't just saying, well, look, the products will be out there. Everybody will have a tutor somehow. Everybody will get better healthcare somehow. No, 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 let's actually have an accord. But Velcro takes two sides to stick. Our community needs to be ready to have that conversation in a constructive way, in a positive way. And the, the AI companies have to be ready to receive that conversation
0: So you hit the nail on the head in terms of what we want to talk about today. So when people talk about disruption in Silicon Valley, I think sometimes people recoil. They say disruption, either A, my life is pretty good, I don't want it disrupted, or disruption, that's going to create winners and losers. And as you said, if we want to help groups that have been left out in the past or folks who are living in poverty, we have to be super intentional about our disruption and our change making. Can you say a little bit more of like how do the how does the public nonprofit private sector like how do we work together to make this happen do we leave government behind or what what are the first steps to get there
1: Well look I think it's going to be a you know a three sided thing where you have you know community and government and the AI companies but community voices need to go ahead and start moving government's going to get there late last and wrong probably <laughs> Look there are assets by the way in black and brown communities that are useful and good for technology companies. The the crazy thing is we get in this, what I call the pity trap, where people who hear about communities have been overlooked and underestimated. We show up with our deficits, with our pain, with our sorrow, with all the ways we've been done wrong. And we want people to then kind of relate to us on the basis of pity, as opposed to on the relationship, on on the basis of partnership. How about we have a win-win partnership? You know what AI companies need? They need four things. They're going to need some help from government, or at least have the government not get in their way. They're going to need cultural adoption, people thinking they're cool and not scary. They're going to need help with ethics and values because these are really big questions. And they're going to need a lot of molecules and atoms, meaning lithium, <laughs> cobalt, etc. Now, Black Bolt got something to say about all four. It turns out African-Americans have a lot of political power. Um, We've invested in politics for 50 years. So we've got a black vice president. We've got two black senators one's running for president. We've got a black governor of the state of Maryland right next door to D.C. The top five, the top 10 cities, seven of them have black mayors. Houston's got a black mayor. Chicago's got a black mayor. LA's got a black mayor. New York's got a black mayor. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries runs all the Democrats in the House. We have a lot of political power. That's an asset. We can come to the table with an asset. Um, culture? I don't mean to be rude. Black people are the supreme court of planet Earth for culture. If black folks say it's cool, it's cool in South Korea. We are the the absolute arbiters of cool. So there's assets there to make this uh, transition, you know, cooler, better, more fun, more, more engaging. Um, ethics and values. No deeper source of that than the black church. Uh, in terms of the civil rights movement and all that sort of stuff. And of course, a lot of the, the, the rare earth minerals are in Africa. So African people, African-descended people can step to the table. We've got stuff, stuff that you need. Let's make a win-win partnership. Let's help each other help each other. That's a much healthier basis to move forward on. And by the way, you can say the same thing for the Latino community. You can say the same thing for Native American communities. You can say similar things. And by the way, Don't forget, you've got a lot of folks in Appalachia and in the Rust Belt who vote for Republicans, but also who have a bunch of needs. You could have a blue, red, black, white, and brown, positive coalition to solve these problems together with the AI companies arm in arm. That's how you build a a coalition for good. And that coalition for good, the, the exciting part about that is you call it the next deal coalition. All right. And the problem that we have is that people in my community have been so traumatized, so hurt, so let down, so scarred and are so scared, we are very threat sensitive. So Dr. King says we want equal protection from bad stuff. He's speaking to that. That's it. You know, We want equal protection from harm, from racism, from Uh, racist robots, from algorithmic bias, from all these different things. Of course, of course, of course, we need all that. But Dr. King didn't stop with equal protection from bad stuff. He also talked about equal opportunity, equal access to good stuff. How do we get an AI tutor for every poor kid? What's the plan for that? Let's sit down. Let's make that a real plan. How do we get black mamas who are dying, having babies? How do we use AI to fix that? Let's not just talk about it. Let's sit down at a table, design that, make it happen with these you know, urban hospitals and these rural hospitals. Let's sit down and do it.
2: One of the things, obviously, that will be important is trust building. What do you think would be the first, engaging in the conversation, bringing the, the, the areas that you described about are totally valuable. What do you think, if, I, if we were issuing a clarion call to the, to the tech people, look, just do this, to start building trust. What's the this?
1: I'm sure that all these companies have put together ethical review groups and they've tried to engage in that type of stuff. Um, I would keep all that if it's working. They need to be working groups at each of these companies that are deliberately engaging with the people on the front lines of the problems. Not trying to fix the problems of AI, right? Communities right now are trying to fix the problems of AI. Now we also need AI to help fix the problems of the community, (laughs) right? So just as you are, um, as we say in the black church, come just as you are. You may not have all the ethical stuff worked out. You may not have figured out all the, you know, gating this and the guardrails for that, but you got good stuff and we got a bunch of problems. So while we're helping you become more ethical, can you help us become more prosperous? And that kind of conversation, I think, first of all, I think a lot of people who work in in, in technology and in AI in particular would be stunned at how overwhelmingly stupid most of the systems are that determine people's lives. If, you know, you take someone like a, like a Clementine Jacoby, uh, Reed, one of your favorite people in the world who created Recidivus. It's a couple of engineers from a high-tech background that said, well, look, I guess we could make another app for like photo sharing or maybe. I don't know. We could do something about the prison system. And so these kids wander off of, I don't know, Google's campus, somebody's campus and start trying to help fix the prison system and are hit upside the head with the stupid stick of how dumb these systems are. People are literally sitting in there having served their sentence in their three months, six months, two years later, because somebody lost the index card with their life on it. And so, and so, literally, just bringing a small amount of engineering smarts, and then she's gotten like three hundred thousand people out of prison. I mean, nutty stuff like that. So you know, you take something. So when I talk about disrupting prisons, I'm talking about stuff like that. I'm talking about literally taking the genius you already have, the tools you already have, and even if it's not going to make a bunch of money right now, even if it might slow you up in a competition with China. Just allocating some mind share to people who are working on problems like that. More than anything else, that's where you're gonna have a breakthrough. And by the way, you are correct, Arya. A lot of people don't want disruption because the status quo is working for them. The the best possible ally for technology that's disruptive are the people who need disruption. It's the people who need, the people that, I don't like the status quo. You said the status quo's gonna get knocked down, hooray. God is real. Hallelujah. Change is coming. Thank you. Like, it's crazy to me that the people who don't have the power, but do have the purpose in terms of seeking change, are over there by themselves, overlooked, underestimated. And the people who have the power to make the change are attached to that purpose, that deep purpose of making society better. So if you take the people with the purpose for change and people with the power for change, you put them together, you have an unbelievable coalition. And then the whole world falls in love with that.
0: I'm so happy you gave a shout out to Recidiviz. I uh, actually met Clem for the first time just last week, and we had like a love fest about all the amazing things they're doing. Um, So they're they're just freaking awesome. But I want to give you an opportunity to shout out some more amazing things that are happening. So there's this powerful convergence happening right now. And you, you have founded, you've led, you know, four nonprofit organizations engaged in social, environmental justice. But you knew we were going to mention it. You also received hundred million dollars from Jeff Bezos to deploy over ten years um, to make the world better, to to disrupt. And so, how do you assess the scale of this opportunity? Where your strategic footholds? Like, how are you going to do that?
1: Yeah, it's when somebody says it's still a kind of a pinch me moment. <laughs> it's still I'm like, did that happen? You know, because it was such a such a dream, and it was. And um, I always remind people it was Jeff uh, Bezos and Lauren Sanchez. Uh, it's it's both of them are working on this courage and civility award and it's just a miracle because um, you know I think they both observed it's easy to be courageous and mean like it's easy to be nice but cowardly it's really difficult to stand up and be very very courageous while you're trying to bring people together in this kind of age of polarization so um, you know it was a life-changing decision that they made to give me and a couple other people $100 million of charitable money. Not money for me. I don't have a new car.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, where are the Ferraris, man? Can you show us your stuff?
1: <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm driving my son's car. He left here when he went to college. So, um, But, um, and I'm staying in an apartment still, so I haven't changed. But um, but it's, it's amazing to have uh, that kind of a capacity. And what we decided to do was, again, to, to try to disrupt prisons, pollution and poverty. Those are the three areas that we're working to disrupt. And one of the things that we did, uh, we built an incubator to help companies, for-profit companies that want to disrupt the incarceration industry. To me, it's so important because having spent 30 years, as you know, working on criminal justice issues, I think we may have been looking at it in too narrow a way. We tend to look at criminal justice as a policy issue, a government issue. Um, The government passed the wrong laws. It's a $90 billion a year industry. The incarceration industry is a $90 billion a year industry. Um, Only about 6% of the prisons are private. But the whole thing generates and, and runs through $90 billion a year. And I think it's time to disrupt that industry. We've seen the taxi industry disrupted by Uber and Lyft. We've seen retail disrupted by Amazon. We've seen hotels disrupted by Airbnb. We've seen dirty energy disrupted by solar and wind and electric vehicles. Let's disrupt this industry. And the way you disrupt it is simply this, competition, innovation, and alignment of financial incentives. So we're organizing entrepreneurs, uh, investors, and policymakers on the following basis. We think that you can bring crime down, I wanna say it again, Bring crime down. Let's say it again. We can bring crime down. I'm not a part of the pro-crime lobby, okay? I'm raising black kids in Los Angeles. I'm not a part, I'm I'm anti-crime. So we can bring crime down, rehabilitation up at a lower price point if we use technology, innovation, and financial incentives. For instance, you lock up a kid here in California. It's $100,000 per year per kid. At the end of that year, you're gonna have the same kid with new tattoos. That's all you got for $100,000. What if I gave one black grandmother and a tech bro the same kid and $100,000? What do you think they would do with that kid? What do you think the outcome there would be? Why can't that black grandmama compete with the incarcerated? Now, listen, if the kid is a a terrorist or an ax murderer, the incarcerators might do a better job. But for most of these offenses, I'm quite sure that home confinement with some technology to monitor plus a, a, a tablet that could give you know world-class education maybe the weekend you got to do some hard work but you stay in your house I think you could get a lot of lives turned around. I think you could save a ton of money and you could wouldn't have to go into anybody else's budget so um well so we actually have 10 companies that we backed. Uh, one of them is called Untapped Solutions. It used to be called Con Connect. Now it's called Untapped Solutions. It's basically a LinkedIn for formerly incarcerated people. And it uses AI to help people when they come home. You only, ha- look, let's just be honest. You've been in prison for five years, seven years, 14 years, you come home. You go on job interview, you get rejected. Job interview, you get rejected. How many job interviews are you gonna go on before you finally give up? It's not infinite. I don't care who you are. And so the key with untapped solutions is they figure out, they use AI to figure out where are you most likely to be hired? Uh, look, if you've if you got a burglary on your record, you're probably not gonna be hired to install cable, okay? So don't send them there. Don't send people to places they're gonna get rejected. Simple, simple, simple. And yet now I think Microsoft is a partner uh, with untapped solutions. They're doing really, really well. If you can break that revolving door, So that when somebody leaves prison, they stay out. You're disrupting the prison industry.
2: Totally awesome. And one little thing for their AI company, which is totally right. Um, Another project that I work with is Byron Aguiz on Opportunity at Work. And one of the things they found was the interviewing skills were actually, in fact, very handy. And that also might be something that's pretty easy to do on the AI side. Like you're just repackaging current AI. Don't have to just make it available in the right way to make it happen. And, you know, you and I can follow up offline uh, on those because totally agree with all the work you're doing here.
0: And Fan, another incredible person that you introduced both Reed and I to, who I didn't want to go another second without mentioning, because we have all of this AI, but many of the people who are creating this AI are white men. And we don't see a diverse set of folks being developers, being engineers. And so I had the pleasure of hanging out with Michael Ellison and what he's doing at CodePath, which is truly revolutionary. And, you know, while it is an NGO, again, using market incentives, these companies want black and brown developers. Like, we need to make this happen. Um, so we'd love to hear, like, why, why is CodePath one of the folks that's on your uh, shortlist?
1: In disrupting poverty, which is you know one of the three, uh, we said, look, these are trillion dollar industries that are going to be launched in our lifetime. Biotech, quantum computing, AI, you go down the list, you know commercial space. I mean, th- these are multi-billion, ultimately trillion-dollar industries. And they're still way down early in their development curve. Now, if you can get on that elevator and ride with it, man, how far can you go? And oh, by the way, if you think of more a, of, a, of a rocket ship, if you get on that rocket ship, you might be able to steer it toward more or better outcomes as well. So you can uh, both have a good positive impact for yourself if you're a young person get in these industries and maybe for the world as well. But how do you do it? You need help. It's so hard to do something or to be something you've never seen. The reason you see all these black and brown kids who want to be entertainers and sports stars is because that's what they've seen. Uh, so of course I want to be a rapper, I want to be a ball player, I want to be Barack Obama, whatever it is, it's what you've seen. The great thing about what Michael Elson is doing with CodePath is He's helping schools that kids are going to already. Like, you know, he's not only helping like the, the Stanford's, and the MIT's, God bless them, but he's helping schools that working class kids go to, often black, often brown kids go to, and he's re-engineering the curriculum so that those kids can be successful in tech on those campuses. Because in the old system, there was a limiting factor on the campus, which is the number of kids that can be in upper division classes. You only had so many great professors. They can only teach so many students. So those introductory courses were brutal. You're trying to wipe out as many kids as you can because there's a limiting factor. You don't have that many great teachers at the top. Well, who gets knocked out? A lot of women get knocked out. A lot of kids of color get knocked out. A lot of poor kids get knocked out. Not that they can't do the work, but comparatively, they're slightly, slightly, slightly less competitive and they get completely wiped out to zero. Well, what Michael Elson does is he puts a jetpack on every teacher. So you don't have to be a fantastic teacher because you you literally have a jetpack on. You've got the curriculum, you've got all the information at your fingertips. So you eliminate that scarcity, and now more kids can can succeed. And he also puts a jetpack on the back of the students because they can, in a very guided way, catch up and keep up. And he's just revolutionizing access to this. Technology education for kids who would otherwise be overlooked. If you want to disrupt poverty, the way you do that is you you leapfrog people from the back of the jobs that are going away to the front of the line for the jobs that are coming, and a whole bunch of problems go away. We don't have to engineer all these different anti-poverty programs if a bunch of kids from communities that you don't expect them to are getting these tools, getting this education, and then bringing those benefits back home organically. That's the power of copath.
2: So we've talked about the, you know, two of the importance the disruptions, prisons, critical. And, you know, as you point out in various ways, just common sense for everybody. And then obviously poverty, which is also the case, because the more talent that we have being productive, the better off we are as a society, not just in terms of health and happiness, but also in terms of economic prosperity, Let's move to the third. What's your what are your plans for on the on 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 the third platform of disruption?
1: Well, you know, as you know, climate pollution, green jobs, you know, that's a big part of my heart. I got you know, I worked for Obama as his green jobs guy. Pi, could you explain?
0: Van Jones played a significant role in the Obama administration. He served as President Barack Obama's special advisor for green jobs in 2009 where he worked to create jobs in the clean energy sector and promote sustainable economic development. In this role, he helped to develop policies and initiatives aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions and combating climate change. He also worked to increase the number of green jobs available to Americans, with a focus on creating opportunities for underserved communities. Overall, Van Jones was a key player in shaping the Obama administration's environmental and economic policies.
1: We're now in this amazing moment where, despite some pushback and some blowback, the Biden administration has put literally hundreds of billions of dollars on the table to help this energy transition happen from dirty to clean, from pollution to solutions. So the stuff that we were fighting for and and, and marching for and working for in the early 2000s, that work is done. The, the money is there. There's not a price on carbon. There's some other challenges, but at least that big government investment is there. The question is, how do you get it to communities? One of the things I'm passionate about is electric vehicles are really, really important uh, for this transition. And in addition to the wealthy Tesla owners who got this movement started, God bless them, you know who really needs EVs now? Uber drivers, Lyft drivers. They need those. First of all, they drive six to 10 times more than me and you. So if they're driving clean, it's clean. If they're driving dirty, it's dirty, no matter what you and I do. So, uh, So the world needs them to be driving clean cars. But also, They can charge a premium if they're driving an electric car. So they get a little bit more money in their pocket. So then they can put their daughter in a community college. Now, they're not just driving around in circles. They're driving to a better place. But here's the problem. Where are they going to charge the car? Right now, if you're in Brooklyn, if you're in the Bronx, where all the gig workers work, there ain't no charging stations. So you've got to drive two hours out to JFK to charge. For four hours to drive your car. It makes no sense. And so uh, I'm a part of an an effort called Obsidian. And we just basically did a bunch of matchmaking to get people who are putting in charging stations in the suburbs, which actually isn't as smart because a lot of people can charge at home in the suburbs. Think about that. What are you doing in the suburbs? A lot of people, they can charge at home. But if you live in dense urban areas where you live in apartment buildings that are 20, 30 foot, people can't charge their car. So you need the technology to be brought to those neighborhoods. So basically, long story short, we figured out that you could take some of those same companies, create a joint venture and get them in our communities. And they actually make more money because people are willing to pay a little bit extra premium to be able to charge at home as opposed to having to drive out someplace to try to go hunting for these different a charging station. So these are the types of things that we're trying to do. How do you deploy these clean tech solutions into communities that might be otherwise overlooked? In Chicago, there are whole neighborhoods they are almost unlivable because you got one house with a good family in it, then two empty houses, then a house is burned down, and then you got a vacant lot and you got another house, a house with a good family in it, and you can't fix that. By the time you replace a couple of houses, it starts to gentrify. <laughs> So it goes from being terrible to being affluent and the people who live there never get the benefit. So you've got to be able to replace those houses quickly and you've got to be able to replace them cheap. We found a company that was in Oregon making modular electric houses. Modular, no waste, they snap together like Legos and they basically have like a battery in the basement and they're great and they cost $250,000. You can make them in six weeks. We said, hold on a sec, you're making modular electric houses in Oregon why don't we do that in Chicago? Why don't we replace whole neighborhoods in Chicago with modular electric houses that the kids in the neighborhood can build because you don't have to have unions you don't have saws and and so we are now on our way to replacing whole neighborhoods with modular electric houses creating jobs for people coming home from prison creating jobs for people who are um, unemployed in the neighborhood supported by all the NFL players in town. This is the kind of stuff you can do. And and we don't have to wait for government to do it. We can do it directly. And so these are the types of things that I think are important. It's a different model of change making.
0: I mean, it just reminds me of, are we in a zero sum society or not? Are we in a situation where if I win, you lose? And that's what technology is about. That's what capitalism is about. The whole thing is let's actually grow the pie for everyone. And so, you know, I I love that idea in particular, like homelessness is one of the issues I care most deeply about. If we can build cheap homes that are also, it reminds me of Saul Griffith, who we had on the podcast last year talking about electrify everything. You know, can we have an electric water heater? Can we have an electric stove? It's like, this is what we can do. And to your point, we have the government backing and now it creates the market conditions for the private sector to come. I mean, another thing that you said, which is, uh, you know, a clear leg of the stool is, Black and brown people are creating culture in our society. You know a little something about the media. I think the media is going to have a large role in this, you know, whether they demonize AI, whether they um, celebrate it. You know, we saw David Leonhardt wrote in The Times that, you know, Me Too and Black Lives Matter, those movements have sort of not come to fruition like we wanted them to, even with a huge media spotlight. Like, where do you see the media playing a part both in terms of AI and sort of the new evolution of change that we're all looking for?
1: Well, right now it's a jump ball. And it's a lot easier to tell the scary story than the hopeful story. Um, and frankly, it's a lot easier to oppose something than to, to propose something. And so that's why those of us who really believe in this stuff are going to have to work really hard. Um, you know, there's only, only so long we can say, you know, it's going to help poor kids and we have no plan for it to actually help the poor kids. So we got to get ahead of it. So when we say it's going to help poor kids, we can actually show the poor kid it's getting help. Like that's, that's going to be the key um, with AI. Um, and, but, you know, but here's the thing. If we do the work, then, you know, we have the stories to show. I mean, that's, that's the, the key here is um, we will get our, our card pulled. Um, so for instance, there's this whole thing in AI, I talk about having a human in the loop, having a, a human being in the loop. Uh, And for some people, that feels comforting. That assumes that the human in the loop is a good human. It assumes the human in the the loop actually knows anything about you. So I say we don't want just people in the loop. We want peoples in the loop. We want indigenous peoples in the loop. We want African peoples in the loop. There are whole peoples whose way of knowing, whose way of seeing things could get left out or could get locked in. Let's be aggressive about that. We want to make sure that we have a lot of data, but we also have a lot of wisdom. Data plus wisdom combination requires peoples in the loop, and so um, those are the kinds of things that, uh, when we do that, that's mediagenic, man. Native Americans sitting down with white tech bros, and you know, uh, figuring out how to use like they, there's stuff that's cool, man. Like if we do cool stuff. Because it's good for people, it's also good for the media. Um, there's a way that we could create a synergy here, and that makes it very, very difficult. There's a group called Always New, that's indigenous people thinking about AI.
2: One interesting follow-up on this, you know, from not your home industry but your hometown, you know, obviously, you know, the kind of the world has watched the writer-actor strike on AI, and yet you think about how AI could be amplifying what you're creating in media and so forth. And maybe this disruption will allow many more peoples, we hope, you know, into this. What's some of the things that you're kind of lensing forward hoping to see from the use of AI to changing the kind of media landscape, not just the stories about it, like exactly, you know, as our earlier conversation with science fiction, but the use of the technology to be, you know, more peoples uh, in the future.
1: It's so exciting because Hollywood needs to be disrupted. There's a guy named Alex Rivera, a young uh, Latin filmmaker. This guy is brilliant. Um, he, wrote, he did a film called Sleep Dealer. Um, it's a sci-fi from a Mexican point of view. And he it basically, uh, in that reality, they, they built a, a wall at the border and they basically strapped Mexicans into these devices where they operate robots on the other side. So they have, the, they have the labor of the Mexicans, but not the bodies, not the presence. So that's the context. It's a brilliant film. It's a brilliant film. Um, he has an idea for something called the Mesoverse. In that reality, you know, maybe the, the colonizers got repelled, but it bumped the Aztecs into a particular position where basically the Mexicans are first in space. He used Mid Journey to image that. What would it look like if Mexicans... And Aztecs and Mayans had gotten to space first. It is so beautiful, it is so stunning, and you—I mean—you just see some of these pictures. Without Midjourney, he'd have been wandering around this town trying to sell this metaverse idea forever. Because when you just say Mexican in space, you think, "Oh, is it a comedy? What are you talking about?" But when you see it, he was able to over the course of a weekend create these images There's now creating this whole conversation in Hollywood, this guy might wind up being the Latin James Cameron or the Latin George Lucas because he was able to get his vision seen without having to raise $10,000 or $100,000 or $3 million or $5 million. You're going to empower so many people who could not get this town to listen. And frankly, a lot of these people you don't need them, guys. You can just make your stuff, put it on on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube and go out about your business. And if it's awesome, people will find it anyway.
0: I want to go check that out. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, coming, coming, um, coming soon. <laughs> absolutely.
1: One of the things that we should
2: also talk about, because it's very important, speaking of peoples in the loop, going into 2024, one thing I've been thinking about is say, only a loser would say that, you know, a presidential election can be stolen under their watch with a Republican Senate in states that have Republican secretaries of state in an election. And in and a bigger loser then claims that the election was stolen, because because only a loser could do that. But that's going to be really fugly because there's going to be a whole bunch of people who think that they need to to engage, unfortunately, with like violence. Like the January 6th stuff is going to be a garden party. What are the ways we should be thinking about it? And what are the ways that we should be Um, you know, navigating this and, and how to be, you know, care for America in this.
1: You know, I just got back from Tennessee, my home, my actual home state, I was shooting a documentary down there for CNN about, you know, politics in the red states. You know, people are hurting and uncertain across the board. On the kind of Trump side, you have people who are managing a stolen past, an unstable present, and a stolen future. I think that's how they're experiencing things. They grew up thinking America was great, perfect, and wonderful. These liberals want to come and say it wasn't. You're you're stealing my past. You want to take down these statues. You want to talk about slavery. You're stealing my past. And the future, the present feels unstable because of the inflation, because of all these cultural changes. You know, people look, you know, the, the old folks' homes look like Switzerland and the kindergartens look like the UN. And it's confusing. Like, what is this? You know, uh, change is hard. The future, whatever the future was supposed to be, it's not coming. That's a problem. People who have better ideas about how to give them the life that they want and more hope, ignore their pain. We say, look, screw you guys. You're a bunch of older white dudes who've had it your way the whole time. You know, quit your bitching make room for other people, that's not as good a sales pitch as you might think. (laughs) You suck, follow me. Uh, Just may not be as persuasive as, you know, our progressive friends think. And so I think you're going to see real intensity on their side for their guy. But what I say, because I never have problems talking to MAGA people, as you know, Um, I feel quite quite comfortable talking to them. Because I just talk to them differently. I just say, look, here's the deal. First of all, let's just be very clear. I'm a black activist. I used to work for Barack Obama, and now I'm on CNN, okay? So three strikes, I'm out. (laughs) You know who I am. I know who you are. We don't have to go through any nonsense here. Um, And based on that, uh, you might think that I'm mad at you. And you would be correct, but not for the reason that you think. I'm mad at you because I need you. You're some of the best people in this country. Uh, Many of you are veterans, like my dad. Uh, You know what it means to stand up for something. Many of you are union members. Some of you are small business owners. Some of the best people in this country. But I could put you in a car right now, sir, and I could take you in 20 minutes to an American community where American kids are going to bed hungry. American children. And where the hell are you guys? I can show you American children who've never met their father because their dad is in a graveyard or he's in prison because he did the same drugs your kids are doing in college right now. And where the hell are you guys? These kids need you. They need your strength. They need your values. They need your integrity. And by the way, you need these kids. They're some of the most creative, amazing kids. Yeah, America's grandchildren look different than America's grandparents, but they're still America's kids and they need you. And by the way, stay in your party. Don't come in my party, I got enough problems. You fix your party, I'll fix mine. But what are we gonna do to help these damn kids? And I'm telling you, those guys would follow me in a machine gun fire and I'd follow them because I'm not calling them out. I'm calling them up. I'm calling them in. The pain that my community is going through, black folks, brown folks, broke folks, is the same pain. Our future's been stolen too. We don't we we thought things would be better by now. We want a better future too. Can we have a positive populism? I don't want to have a negative populism where I either gotta hate the billionaires to be with the left. By the way, not only is Reed a billionaire, I love you, Reed. But you know who else is a billionaire? Oprah. Oprah, the I gotta hate Oprah to be in your movement. We just got some black billionaires. Now I gotta hate them too. I can't be with y'all. No, I'm sorry. So I don't want to be the movement where I gotta hate billionaires. We just got a couple. And reads one of them. I I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna do that. Or I don't wanna be the movement like where I gotta hate immigrants or Muslim people. Those are negative populism. What about a positive populism that's not based on problems and blaming people, but it's based on solutions and working with people to get there. If we offer people that, I think more of them will either come. Or at least they won't try to kill us. And I'll take either one. But for me, I think people are going to be very surprised. Um, people are hurting and uncertain on both sides. The job report is good, but the jobs suck. People can't, I mean, it's embarrassing. People are People are being humiliated in front of their children. Because when that check engine light comes on, they can't fix it. I know it sounds crazy. It's corny. Nobody wants to hear this. But I'm going to tell you right now. Showing up with positive solutions, showing up with, I need you, showing up with, we can do it, showing up with, I love you no matter who you are. You're in jail, you're in prison, you you did bad stuff, I love you, None you can do about it. You voted for Trump, I love you, nothing you can do about it. Vote against me every time, I love you, nothing you can do about it. Showing up with that, I think is the only way out of it. I don't think we can divide our way out of it, I think we got to unite our way out. I think we have to unite our way out of it.
0: I mean, Van, you are you are preaching to my choir. Uh, I have goosebumps, and I think to your point, this is the first time in seventy years when the majority of people won't do better than their parents. For all of us liberals to say like, "Oh, things are great. We're just moving ahead. We're moving positively." Like you have to understand where people are coming from, and and to your point, meet them where they are.
2: Our first rapid fire question, is there a movie, song, or book that fills you with optimism for the future?
1: I like this gospel group called Maverick City. It is a bunch of kids. I call them kids because I'm in my 50s. Bunch of young people who somehow started writing these gospel songs, uh, many of them uh, as a live improvisation and it is stunningly beautiful stuff they just won a, a Grammy i think this past year but it is it's it's the way i imagine the early christians must have experienced just the rapture of uh, of of feeling emancipated in their souls that there's something more than just this life. That's, and they look like, you know, they've got tattoos and piercings and they, they look like a bunch of urban kids that should not be singing Jesus songs. And yet anybody can listen to that stuff and be moved. If you can listen to that stuff and not be moved, go get a heart transplant. Something's wrong with you. Um. So I would say anything from Maverick City.
0: So this, um, this question can be silly or serious. Um, what is the question that you wish people asked you more often?
1: Maybe where I'm from because I love talking about being from the edge of a small town in the middle of a red state. I think people think I was like born in the Obama White House or born next to Anderson Cooper on CNN or something. I <laughs> they Like, you know, I was just, you know, I wasn't born at CNN. I wasn't born, you know, at Yale Law School. I was born in Jackson, Tennessee on the edge of a very small town. My parents grew were born in 1944. Um, they grew up in real segregation. Um, people are like, why do you guys keep talking about segregation? That wasn't that a thousand years ago. No, I'm sorry. My mother and my father <laughs> were born in segregation. My mother and my father were married under rank, brutal, Jim Crow, colored signed segregation. <laughs> um, I was born in 1968. I was the first person in my family in nine generations here in the United States. Nine generations, the first one born with all my rights recognized by the government because those final bills were passed 64, 65. I was born in 68. So, you know, it's important for people to realize this is not that long ago. You know, I come from a county where the difference between rich people and poor people, probably about $40,000 a year. We all went to the same public school and we got along. Uh, Black, white, you know, so-called rich, so-called poor, Democrats, Republicans. And um, so I don't have to guess. I know um, that you can vote against somebody and still love them. I know you can go to a different church, have different skin color and still love them. Uh, That's how I was raised.
0: So, Van, this is our final question. And to be fair, you've been answering it all afternoon. But uh, I will give you one final opportunity, which is, uh, can you leave us with a final thought on what you think is possible to achieve if everything breaks humanity's way in the next 15 years? And what's our first step in that direction?
1: I I think we can shock ourselves. First of all, I think people should see themselves consciously as co-founders of a new human civilization. That's what we should sign up for. We are co-founders of a new human civilization. You know, Dr. King really misunderstood in at the March on Washington, 1963. Um, I got a chance to go and, and be one of the people that gave a speech in, in the anniversary this year. Dr. King was the final founder of a democratic republic. It took 200 years. It wasn't like, like 1776, we had a democratic republic. We had a slave state on stolen land. <laughs> And then, hundred years later, we had a civil war to get us to apartheid. Okay, that that was what the civil war gave us: apartheid for another hundred years. It took two hundred years, um, but the final founders were Dr. King's generation. You know, Ella Jo Baker and Benny Lou Hamer and Bayard Rustin and Diane Nash and John Lewis and Dr. King. They were the final founders of a democratic republic on these shores, and Dr. King was the most consequential Afrofuturist ever born. Because he said, I have a dream. A dream is a vision for the future. It's about tomorrow. So you had the most consequential Afro- Afrofuturist standing there in front of the country. That was the final founding. But that order is now going away. We may not even have nation states. We don't know what's going to happen. So we're, we're, we're creating a new order. We're, we're co-founders together of a new civilization. And that should give people a lot of hope. That should give people a lot of pride. The decisions we make together in the next 10, 20 years will determine the, the whole destiny of humanity.
0: Van, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it.
2: Possible is produced by Wonder Media Network, hosted by Ari Finger and me, Reid Hoffman. Our showrunner is Sean Young. Possible is produced by Edie Allard, Sarah Schleed, and Paloma Moreno Jimenez. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer and editor.
0: Special thanks to Katie Sanders, Surya Yalamanchili, Saida Sapieva, Ian Alice, Greg Beato, and Ben Rellis. And a big thanks to Ray Stewart, Gus Alexander, Andy Lichtenfeld, Felicia Montgomery, Kalia Lydgate, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, Felicia, Shand, and Little Monster Media Company.